Dr. Sandra Gibney has been on the show many, many times throughout the lockdowns of 2020 and continuing now in uh, 2021, heading into 2022. I'm sure we'll still have questions. And if you have a question for Dr. Gibney, bring it 302 529 1017. Really talk about vaccines, vaccinations, 302 529 1017. She is bright, she is informed, and she is fearless. Sandy, thanks for being on. Hi, Rick. Happy Veterans Day, and thank you for having our most important people that have, you know, given service to our country. So oh, absolutely. amazing that you did that. Yes, sir. Oh, no, I just get the, the couple of generals on and uh, and have their their thoughts and ask them a couple, um, well, General Barry, he was, I think he did a fine job. I asked him uh, one very uncomfortable question, but that's the kind of thing that we do for a living. And I, uh, I, he's a very positive guy. He really is a very positive individual, and I know he's hardworking and really cares about the troops. I hear that from from so many other people. Now, as we talk about vaccinations, you know, I'm getting my booster. I'll be getting it what tomorrow or, or something, I suppose. Whenever you mm-hmm. you say, come and get your booster, and and as you know, whether we agree or disagree about uh, different things, I also am against the mandates, and uh, and and I see a lot of these things happening now with the children and the boosters, and there are a lot of parents who are very very concerned about uh, boosters for the kids. For example, in France and Germany, they have put a hold on the Moderna vaccine for children. That's the one that uh, that I have. I'm very pleased with it. I'm getting my Moderna booster. Um, what do you know so far from scientists uh, about uh, the Moderna, for example, and the Pfizer for kids? Yeah, so, you know, the Moderna is not for kids yet. They've put it back and put a hold to get more data um, to be 100% safe. That's always the first and foremost. Um, we do know that, that Pfizer has been released for emergency use authorization and it's been found um, with that one-third of the adult dose um, to be 91% effective, um, the side effects are very, very, very slight in kids, even more than adults. Mostly they're experiencing some pain right there where they got the shot, sometimes a little swelling there. And then like we had as adults, some general fatigue um, and maybe some muscle pain but um, and a dull headache. But their symptoms seem to be very brief and, and, and mild and lasting a day or two um, and again we're doing two doses three weeks apart um, and we know that the, that the children in this group um, made up um, about 39 uh, percent of the cases for individuals under 18 so it's not like they don't get sick mm-hmm. um, and there has been 146 deaths so um, you know we, re- we really think that it's important that this group of kids um, get vaccinated and as you and I have discussed um, you know off air is that you know, this virus will live um, in anyone and everyone it can, and it will get smarter each time it does. And when it runs out of adults as hosts, it goes to children. And initially, I'm going to tell you, the first six, eight months, I didn't see a child under six infected. Um, every, it was, this virus was going for the adults. It was the big bang. It knew that it had a bigger body and it could learn more and replicate more. But when it ran out of a large majority of hosts, when we became like 40 or 50 percent vaccinated, then it started going after the kids. So, so the kids are having a mild illness, but they're bringing it home. And then if they get vaccine, vaccinated, of course, the chances of, of, of them getting sick are quite, quite, quite less. So for that reason, you know, yes, they make up a very small percentage globally. Um, but I don't, you know, again, if you're the, if it's my child and 
And if it was your grandchild, you would look at it like, do you want to be the one that your child gets sick versus she gets vaccinated, you know? And if they do get sick, we have the concerns with, you know, the MIS-C, the systemic inflammatory response syndrome, and those things that are, you know, can be dreadful. Um, I had pictures sent to me by a parent of their child. It just broke out in blisters everywhere, had this inflammatory response, was hospitalized for three or four days, and the child, you know, was less than two covered with blisters it was just horrible so so it's 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 not a, a and this is from covid this is from covid not the vaccine yes, yes sir yeah this is from covid you know the vaccine interestingly i'm glad you mentioned that though because there was a big concern um whether or not in children um we were going to see some myocarditis pericarditis which is that inflammation of the lining of the heart and the heart muscle itself or in fact whether we would see any anaphylaxis or death and we did not. In fact, there was none in this age study group 5 to 11. So we feel pretty good about that because when we first put out the messenger RNAs, we saw that there was a group of young gentlemen, young men that got some myocarditis um, inflammation, very brief. Most of them are hospitalized, if, if at all. It was only very short and brief, a day or so. But, but again, we're not seeing this in the children. And I will tell you, you know, and you, you tell this as an ER doc of 27 years, at this time of year, when that was coming on, um, we see myocarditis, pericarditis in young men. It was not unusual. It just became a little bit more prominent um, when we're studying a vaccine and everything is under the microscope with it. But is that that's the time of the year that we actually will see that. So so that was like the main concern. Um but, but again, you know, I really encourage this. Um, the delay, the FDA delayed Moderna's um, when they were, they were trying to get approval of 100 microgram dose for the age 12 to 17. Um, and they wanted more data, which um, the FDA is trying to keep people safe. Um, and, and again, to investigate whether or not there's going to be any risk of this myocarditis in that age group 12 to 17, not the 5 to 11. Moderna is going, going a little bit slower, a little bit farther behind track on Pfizer um, with how they submit their data and how they're doing it. But so probably it may be till January 2022 until we see Moderna's, you know, a, approval for the teens 12 to 17 and then probably a little bit longer even after that that Moderna comes um, and, and it's available for the younger age group like Pfizer. But I will be vaccinating. We don't want to get, it, get ahead of myself, but I will be vaccinating five to 11 year olds um, next week, Thursday at Ursuline Academy. Um, and I did, I had the honor of, of doing when um, Pfizer was approved for um, the 12 and above, I had the honor of doing their vaccines there. So I will be boosting as well. So, um, so yeah, so, so we're, we're, we're going forward and I encourage parents to certainly consider that not only because their child doesn't want to get COVID, because it, it, it may probably be a mild thing, but it may, in that rare case, may not. Well, yeah, but and the vast majority of cases are home to Brett, yeah. Grandpa. But yeah, the, the vast, the, but the vast majority of cases uh, obviously are are uh, are very mild, and you know, mm-hmm. think there are millions of kids in this uh, in this country, and uh, thankfully, less than two hundred uh, have been fatal. But um, it, yeah, your your point about uh, transmissibility, for example. So far, what scientists know is that if you're fully vaccinated, Moderna or Pfizer, the mRNA, you are tra- you can transmit to somebody else for about four days. If you're not vaccinated, it can be seven to ten days. So what do they know about uh, kids and transmissibility? Yeah, I think they're going to fall into the same category, but you're absolutely right. I mean, initially, when we got these vaccines, we were like all hipped up to think, 
you know, oh, that we weren't going to be able to transmit, you know. Um, but we do know through the study through the British Medical Journal that those, that 5% of the folks that had a vaccine breakthrough, um, they were just as infectious as non-vaccinated people, but their shed time was much, much less, right. than, as we discussed, you know. Yeah. So I'm not saying that the vaccine is 100% protected and never could say that. You know, we were at Sussex Prison on Monday, and the guys asked me that. Well, are you, are you telling me I'm 100% protected? No, sir, I am not. And I would not, I would not say that. And very few things in this life after I've turned to, into my 50s, I found that nothing is 100% anything. Yeah, right. Maybe other than my husband. So, but, <laughs> but, but honestly, um, yeah, so just understand that, you know, that, that in that very small group of people that end up getting COVID after vaccination, we call them the breakthroughs, um, they can still shed, but it's going to be much, much less. So small, small amount that breakthrough and short, short time that they're infectious. I'll buy that. You know, no, I, no, I appreciate that. So, Dr. Sandra Gibney, let's talk a little bit about monoclonal antibodies. So uh, this has been something people have felt like they could rely on if they get COVID. They could get uh, Regeneron, for example, uh, monoclonal antibodies. And yet state to state to state, it's it's different as to whether or not you're even allowed to. For example, I believe in Delaware, um, anecdotally, as I understand, you can clear this up, uh, you can get monoclonal antibodies if indeed um, you're almost about to go to the hospital and the doctors say, uh, yes, that at that point you can get that because it has to be delivered through IV. What is the protocol that, as you know it right now for that? Yeah, so there is, there is um, a qualification. There, there is a qualification standard that um, mostly is exclusionary um, and it's some discretionary for the physician who has made the diagnosis. So individuals within, in the hospital with themselves, they can get it. So, but we're talking about like outpatient people like are trying to get better sooner and not have a severe illness. So they're seeing the doctor perhaps in their office or in an urgent care um, um, and, 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 you know, sometimes in the ER, um, we're seeing someone who is at very high risk. They have diabetes. They're very obese. They've had um, a heart disease. Um, they're immune um, compromised. Those individuals, as long as they are not hypoxic. Um, and if they are hypoxic, then as an outpatient, they are not going to be qualified to do so. And, and the concern there is that um, they're probably not safe as an outpatient infusion and probably, number one, should be hospitalized. Two, we're too far. The virus has taken hold. It is probably replicating too quickly and too much mm -hmm. for these antibodies to bind to it. So as outpatient it docs, we're looking at those individuals that are not terribly hypoxic. They should go to the ER immediately anyway, but for these people that are high risk um, and we want them to get better because we don't want their immune system to be so overwhelmed that they could, you know. Okay. So let me understand worse. this a little bit. Uh, you know, hypoxic means that uh, you have very, very low oxygen levels in your blood. And, and as I understand what you're saying is that you have very, very low oxygen uh, levels in your blood, then it's not going to be as effective. No, no, it has nothing to do. Well, there, there, there is some concern that the level of the viremia at that point is probably going to be too overwhelming for the antibodies to be able to suck up, and and you know that's what these are. They're they're basically they're basically sponges, one to one binding or thereabouts, um, at at a particular site of the virus, and it, the antibody binds to receptor site of the virus, where gotcha. then that attaches to our respiratory tract specifically, that's where it starts. So if it's already 
causing our respiratory tract not to oxygenate our cells. Mm -hmm. That means that we have had an overwhelming amount of virus in our respiratory tract where it starts, where it binds. And so it's very challenging at that point for this antibody on a one-to-one kind of basis to be able to bind again to, to where the virus binds to the cells. And, um, and so for this reason, you know, hypoxia becomes a bigger issue. Um, and that person, first of all, shouldn't be, if, they're, if their oxygen levels are low, they're in trouble. They yeah. shouldn't be, you know, messing around with an outpatient infusion. They, right. they should be seen for other things that, you know, obviously supplemental oxygen, la, 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 you know, those kinds of things. Gotcha. But, but, I, but, but the monoclonal antibody right now, as you stated, Regeneron is, has been one of our, you know, armamentarian tools in armamentarium. But now that, uh, but the problem is, uh, as I told you, it binds to a single site, the receptor site where the, uh, on the virus, and that site is where the virus binds to our cells. But as we've said, this virus is so freaking tricky, it mutates. Yeah. So that that site where the virus binds to our cells is most likely to have genetic variants, to change it up, to make it look different. So oftentimes we feel like that that monoclonal antibody may be in trouble in time because of the virus mutating or changing at that site. So they made this drug, it's experimental, so tribimab. It attaches to a site of the virus that does not mutate. It's considered like a really? epitome. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so this so this particular antibody binds a different site. Um, and they they have done studies. They have the first group of 300 patients. It's a 500 milligram infusion. But here's the good news as well. I'll tell you, it decreased hospital rates and deaths by 85%. It's considered to be a pan-coronavirus antibody because it's binding to a site that does not seem to mutate. The beautiful thing about it and what I like is even though that those that weren't treated with COVID, 77% were hospitalized, and those that were treated with only 1%. Mm. But they, they can, there is a arm there where it can be administered intramuscularly, one shot instead of an effusion. Right. So, now, so that's actually, that's, that's, that would be a good thing a if this deal. thing is effective. A, uh, it, it's, it's able to uh, cancel the virus, if you will, in a way that uh, is stable because it attacks the virus where it's not mutating, and you can get this with one injection. You don't have to be on, on an IV. That's nice. That's what they're, yeah, that's what they're hoping for. Yeah. And, you know, if that, that be the case, that, you know, a lot of us docs will take a breath because we still have to make a lot of arrangements to get someone into an effusion center at one of our hospitals. It's a little tricky. You know okay. I mean? so yeah. It's not like I can't hook up an IV at this time, at this date. Maybe next year I will be administering it, you know, where I work. But but at this point, it's at a hospital, pretty much infusion. But 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 again, again, it's new, it's novel, so people want to be in the hospital. With we it. only have Eventually a – Dr. Gibney, we only have a couple of minutes left. So uh, I understand there is a uh, – a, a new antiviral drugs by Pfizer and Merck that uh, have applied uh, now as treatments uh, for COVID? What are they? Yeah, so there's two. Pfizer has an investigational oral antiviral drug. Most of these drugs are similar to our HIV drugs, some of what we call protease inhibitors. They stop the virus from replicating. They're better if they're given early. Um, and they've given it an, you know, an investigational name, but they're so sure that it's going to get approved that they call Paxlovid 
is the proposed name. Um, they found that Pfizer's drug decreased COVID-related hospitalizations and deaths by 90% in patients with, with, that uh, are at risk for severe disease. And those are the people I told you about, the diabetics, hypertensive, heart disease people. Sure. They're in phase two and three randomized trial and have shown that 0.8% um, of the patients taking the drug within three days of symptoms were hospitalized compared to 7%. So that's a big deal. In the placebo group, 27 people were hospitalized, seven died. In the drug group, only three were hospitalized, zero, um, zero deaths. So big deal when you have no deaths in a new drug group versus 10 in a placebo group. They applied for emergency use authorization based on this data. The study was stopped early because of efficacy. It looks so good. They said, no, go ahead and put your data in. So that's Pfizer. Merck has a similar drug, which is a protease inhibitor, molnupiravin, which is an oral drug. It cut the risk of hospitalization death in half if taken within five days of symptoms. They, too, have applied for emergency use authorization, and the FDA advisory committee will meet on um, the 30th of this month to make that decision. One pill, 12 hours apart for five days. Similar to what we and that, do now that's when it. We, we give the yeah, the, yeah. when we have well, someone have influenza, they take that. Again, very important within first five days of symptoms, and possibly we will use this as a potentially post-exposure prophylaxis. So you get exposed to someone, and you go, "Hey, doc, can you give me that pill?" So there I you go. Yeah. And, and by the way, we have discussed the uh, the Merck pill here, but not in a positive way, just that it costs like less than $8 to make it. They're charging 700 bucks uh, for it as well. Uh, that's a different topic. Uh, and I know we want to talk about boosters for all. We're gonna Let's do that if you have time Monday, uh, perhaps Monday yeah. or Tuesday, because what I want to get to with this last one minute here is that in addition to being a serial vaccinator, Dr. Gibney, you're out there in the neighborhoods and the east side, especially and such, and I just want people to know that you're doing turkeys and maybe they can help out somehow. Tell us what you're doing. Yeah, so um, on, on Friday the 19th, we're going to be out at the warehouse, which is out there on the east side, trying to help out the folks. Uh, when I say we, it's, you know, my my uh, compadre, Lieutenant Governor Bethany Hall-Long, um, who goes out on most of my missions, and, mm -hmm. and she and, and Xanthia Oliver, our councilwoman there, um, we will be in partnership with the warehouse, which is a beautiful facility. We'll be out there giving out um, turkeys and other things to those that suffered uh, from the floods um, that occurred on the east side, Riverside, um, and with the partnership from ShopRite as well to help me with my costs. <laughs> Yeah. How to buy, buy these stock. They tell me, you know, turkeys cost a lot. I'm they to do. They've gone up, people. yeah, because of supply chain yeah. problems, right? God so, dang, right. Yep. That's a heavy turkey, right? So, yeah. So, thanks for that. Heavy They're helping turkey. me pay for these turkeys. Yeah, because we'll talk about it. Okay, I'll buy And, and yeah. Dr. Gibney, yeah. Sandy, we'll talk about it again next week as well. So, no, I appreciate cool. the information and the knowledge. Always appreciate the phone calls. And as more and more developments come our way, I know that you're going to be sharing your knowledge uh, on that as well. Thanks a lot, Doctor. 100%. I appreciate it. You got it, Rick. See you soon. Stay tuned. More with Rick Jensen just ahead on 1150 AM, 1017 FM, WDEL.